weighty task somewhat of unpacking this area of suffering, and I'm hoping not to induce suffering itself uh, in the process of, of talking about it. Let's hope not. Um, but why do bad things happen? Why? Uh, if God exists, why doesn't he do something? Why am I being singled out in this whole process? Of all the questions that we ask about God, surely suffering is the greatest. We only have to glance at the news to find more fuel for our questions. Why do neighboring countries bomb each other into oblivion? Why do soldiers die every day and civilians die every day in wars, some of which are worthwhile, others are pointless? Why did central London descend into chaos uh, last summer, giving rioting and looting? Why are innocent children abused by celebrities? Why did nobody else stand up to protect them? Why are five-year-old girls abducted from their homes and murdered? Why are lives ended in an instant in car crashes? Why do young and old die of brain tumors? And they're often the people who least seem to deserve it. Why? And we acknowledge that this is not just an intellectual question. Suffering is not just something that we see on the news. Suffering is something that is real to us all. It is universal and it has impacted everyone in one way or another. Perhaps through uh, struggles at home with family or our spouse or our children. Perhaps the pressure of work. Perhaps it's loneliness. Perhaps it's depression. Perhaps it's acute grief, perhaps long-term illness, friendship breakdown, infertility, the heartbreak of having never married, or just generally having a broken heart. Our struggle in our family has been uh, with ill health um, more recently. My husband, at the age of 11, fell and banged his head on a wooden floor and what followed shortly afterwards has never been understood by neurologists. Medicine has nothing to say. Um, the pattern that has been that years and years of full health are interspersed with periods of illness uh, that range in severity, in severity from him being not able to work to being not able to speak or talk either. And these periods recurred when Conrad was 15 for four months and also in his mid-twenties for 14 months. He was literally in bed for a year. And I met Conrad shortly after his recovery uh, from this prolonged time of illness. And while we were dating, we discovered that cranial osteopathy uh, seemed to uh, uh, help to reverse some of the symptoms. And while we didn't understand, we were both scientists, we couldn't understand why this would work, but we were grateful that there was something that would mean that hopefully there wouldn't be another year spent in bed. And in 11 years of married life, Conrad has been ill a further four times, and some of our biggest challenges have been coping with it as a family of four, with two little ones uh, in the equation. The most recent neurologist has said to us, there's nothing we can do for you. Um, and for some, Many hear those words, and for some it marks the beginning of the end of life. For us, it wasn't threatening to life itself, only to its quality. But that 
can wreak havoc enough, as we all know. And in a talk on suffering, we cannot say that we have all the answers. The more that we look at this area and this subject, the more we, we realize that suffering is a mystery. It is deeply personal, it is deeply mysterious. And we do not have all the answers. And I do not claim for one minute to say, to say that, and we can only scratch the surface this morning. But at the same time, just because we don't have all the answers doesn't mean there is nothing that we can say. There are some things that can be said that help us make more sense of life and of our hurting world, not less. Let's start with this. If you have ever asked why, it raises an interesting thought. To whom are you addressing the question? Because if uh, suffering is only a problem if God exists. If God exists, he has some explaining to do, but if he does not, then suffering is not a problem as such. It is inconvenient, yes. It is distressing, yes, but problematic, no. Because if there is no higher being, then to whom are you addressing your complaint? The late Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist and an author of the book God is Not Great, was interviewed on CNN in 2001 about the news of his diagnosis of terminal cancer of the esophagus. And he was asked whether despite his atheism he had been tempted to ask the question, why me? And he responded in a way that was very faithful to atheism. He said this, you can't avoid the question, however stoic you are. You can only bat it away as a silly one. Millions of people die every day. Everyone's got to go sometime. However bleak his answer, he was actually faithful to his own beliefs. For if God does not exist, then there is no one to ask why to. And yet, if there's no one to ask why, then why do so many people ask why? If you like, why the why? Why are we here this morning to hear answers on the subject why? If there is no one to ask, why do we all ask it? The very asking of the question raises an objection to the way that the world is. It, it, it's almost like times of suffering raises in that awareness that something is not right. At times when I'm struggling, when Conrad is unwell, I find myself asking, why can't I just have a normal life? Why can't I just do the things that are so basic for other people and other families? But then the question hot on the heels of this is, well, what exactly is a normal life? And why is it that times of suffering make us such a strong desire for that normal life? You know, sometimes we cry out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This was not the way my life was supposed to turn out. Well, that begs the question, how are things supposed to be then? How was your life supposed to turn out? It's as though times of suffering bring to the forefront the fact that things are in two things. Firstly, the way things are that we wish they weren't, and the way that we would like things to be, but they aren't. 
In other words, personal suffering creates an awareness that there is something wrong and that there is a longing for something better. Right and wrong, good and bad, are brought clearly into focus to the forefront. Well, how do we explain good and bad? How do we explain right and wrong? And there are a number of different things, different ideas that people come up with, but a popular one in our culture is, well, you, everyone has their own internal moral law, don't they? You do what's right for you. That's what's good and right. Whatever works for you, that's true for you, but not true for me. But what if doing what's right for you brings harm to somebody else? The riots of London and Manchester and wherever else in 2001 almost gave us a glimpse of what life would, be, would look like if everyone lived according to their own internal morality. A looter was interviewed on the Radio 4 programme and asked why he was stealing and looting and his answer was there was an opportunity to get possessions free of charge and he wasn't going to waste it. And the programmer then asked him, well, would you mind if somebody came and looted your own home? Well, no, that would be utterly unacceptable, actually. And this is a classic problem with an individualistic uh, way of defining right and wrong. Whatever is right for you is fine until it literally comes knocking on our own door. And then suddenly we invoke a higher moral standard that no, some things are absolutely wrong. And they're wrong not just for me, but for you as well. London. 2011 gave us a glimpse into what the world would look like if everyone lived in that way, and it was anarchy for a few days. The Christian perspective is that right and wrong do not originate internally, but they originate in something or someone bigger than us, outside of us. Good is defined by a God who is a being who does not lie, in whom there is no darkness, no malice, no deceit. A being who is the ultimate definition of good and against whom all other definitions are compared. When we are longing for that something better, the Christian perspective says that is God, the ultimate definition of good. And therefore, good is fixed and un an unchanging standard regardless of your culture, your background, the time point in history. It is, it is fixed. And suffering and evil is anything that is contrary to who, who God is. You see, an atheist might say that the problem of suffering rules out the existence of God. But a Christian would say that it actually the very existence of God is what helps us make sense of that gut feeling that this is wrong and this is right. That's where those feelings find their home in a God who says good is defined outside of ourselves and evil and the suffering it causes is anything contrary to that good. It actually helps us make more sense and anchor why we have that gut feeling. But another common question people ask is, well, how could a loving God allow people to suffer? And here people are not asking whether God exists, but what is he like? If he did exist, what is he actually like? Because the problem is many people don't actually believe that God is good. 
most of the complaints raised against him are addressing his morality. He is a moral, morally dubious character, actually, not the good God that I hear people talking about. And the, the thinking goes something like this. Given the suffering in our world, if God exists, then either he is not all-powerful, in other words, he's a frail old man who would dearly love to help, but sadly can't. Or he is not all good. He could be actually vindictive or malevolent, the one actually causing the suffering. Or he might just play favorites. I'm going to do this to you, but not to you. Or he could be lazy. He has it within his power to do something, but chooses not to. But either way, none of those options are particularly appealing. Surely a loving, all-powerful God would, would create a loving world. So why doesn't he? To answer this question, let me ask you to imagine something. Imagine for a moment that you are God and you've been assigned the task of creating a new world. Such things are not difficult to conceive in today's world of PlayStations that our children and grandchildren seem to spend a lot of time on. And in this task, you are given one thing to uphold. This world that you create must be the most loving that it could possibly be. How would you do it? How would you set up the natural world and its laws? Would you include water, without which you can't have life, but then you also have drowning, the possibility of drowning? Would you exclude bacteria and therefore rule out MRSA, but also impede the digestion of every living thing? What sort of nature would you give the people? Would you give them advanced cognitive abilities, knowing that they could uh, invent technologies that could wipe out life? but also the ability to create medicine that can save billions of lives. We don't have to ponder the idea before realizing that creating a perfect world is not as simple as we might think. In the movie The Truman Show, Truman Burbank uh, is played by Jim Carrey, and he is a, uh, a salesman who is oblivious to the fact that his life is a TV show watched by millions. His hometown of Sea Haven is a gigantic TV set. I don't know if any of you have seen, seen this film. He thinks he is married to Meryl, but she is fictional. And the insurance company he thinks he works for doesn't exist. And everyone else is in on the deal except Truman. And the film strapline, on the air, unaware, summarizes it well. And the movie ends with Truman leaving home to broaden his horizons, only to discover that those horizons are made of canvas. And there's an interesting moment where his boat just hits the edge of the TV set. And finally, he discovers the truth about his captivity. The movie is clear. Um, he escapes into real freedom. And the movie is clear that that is the only morally acceptable outcome of such a film where someone is being held uh, in, in, a, in a place that has the appearance of freedom, but it is not real. The only right outcome is to escape into real freedom. And the type of world that God has created is one in which people have real freedom. Because that is the only morally right way to create a world. A one in which people are free to make their own choices. 
But free choice has to have the possibility of wrong choice, otherwise it is not freedom. And uh, C.S. Lewis says this, and, and uh, the, the way we look at our world says that much suffering is actually caused, not firstly by God, but by the wrong choices of some people, of people. If a pedestrian is knocked down and killed by a driver who was on the phone or texting, is it really right that God is blamed for that? Or is the driver responsible for their actions? If an elderly person is mistreated in a care home, is God to blame? Or are the carers responsible for their foolish choices? How does this help us answer the question, surely a loving God would not allow people to suffer? Well, Christianity speaks of of a God who is love. That is his definition. He is love and has created a world with love right at the center. But for love to be possible, there must be freedom. If someone holds a gun to your head and says, do you love me? And you say, yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you do. For love to be possible, there must be freedom. But our freedom can be used for good or for harm. And it is in the misuse of our freedom, very often, that much of human suffering is brought about. And when we suffer, and if you have suffered at the hands of other people, it is not a personal punishment from God. It is not a lightning bolt from him to you. It is a general consequence of living in a world in which people make wrong choices. And that very much grieves God as much as it does you. But if God exists, does he care about my suffering? During our struggles with ill health, I have noticed the different ways that people act towards a person in pain. Um, I found that some didn't ask questions at all. Um, Some offered amazing practical help. Some of you are here. That kept our family afloat. Some felt awkward and skirted around the subject. Some said, get well soon. But the problem was, I felt like my husband was going to stay sick long when you don't know when something is going to end. It was our experience, and perhaps it's yours as well, and that the people who were the greatest source of comfort to us were those who had themselves suffered or who were watching loved ones suffer or had, uh, were also themselves suffering. At the time, I was drawn to these people. Why? Because I felt understood by them. There was something significant about our shared experience of suffering. It was comforting to know that we are not alone in our suffering. And it raises the question that if God is real, what is his reaction to my suffering? Does he even care what I'm going through? If he were in the room, would he be socially awkward? Or would he be willing to just sit and identify? If he does care, then why does he stay so distant? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why doesn't he come and experience life here, not just stay aloof in heaven? Why doesn't he get his hands dirty and know what it really feels like to live amongst the grime and the grit and the mess of the world that we live in? This question is appealing to a personal God. 
We want our questions to be known personally by a God who is personal. We need to know that not all of the world religions speak of a personal God. In Islam, Allah is to be revered and submitted to, but that aspect of personal interaction, even a reverent Muslim would say, it isn't part of what, what, what happens. In Eastern thought, God is referred more to as an it, and the goal is to forget self, forget self-identity, and merge with an impersonal one. And therefore, the only place where our cry to be recognized and heard by a personal God is in the Judeo-Christian faith where God became as personal as it is possible to be by stepping into human history as a person. Um, our Christmases that we are about to celebrate, they get, they get overrun by Santa, by socks, by red wine, by reindeer. And yet what we are celebrating is the enormity of the fact that the God of eternity has stepped into human history. He has come down. He has made himself more obvious. He has uh, identified with us in our suffering. And therefore, right at the center of the Christian faith is a God who not only hears and listens to our cries, but he also stepped into human history as a person to face suffering head on. The person of Jesus radically dealt with and spent time with the suffering of many. He healed the sick. He raised people who had died. He calmed people who were afraid. He reinstated the marginalized. He restored the dignity of many. He knew what it was to suffer. He wept at the death of a friend. He experienced acute grief. He knew what it was to be tired and hungry and angry. He was close to the brokenhearted. He fully identified with the humanity of people and experienced many of the things that we do. But not only that, he willingly went to his death on behalf of humankind to deal with the root cause of suffering. And he did that by suffering himself. Right at the, symbol, the, the center of the Christian faith is the, the, the symbol of the cross. And many people wear it as jewelry, people of faith and people who wouldn't say they have faith. But the equivalent of this today would be like wearing a gallows or an electric chair or a guillotine around, around your neck. You see, the Christian faith has at its core not a symbol of victory or triumph, but a symbol of execution and death. Jesus, at the end of his life, was arrested and tried unfairly. He was an innocent man who was wrongly accused, a miscarriage of justice took place. He was sentenced to death. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends who had spent three years with him. He was disowned by Peter, another of his closest friends. He was deserted by everybody else. Um, he suffered loneliness. He probably even struggled with depression in those moments just before he died. Blackness, can't see past it. He was flogged cruelly. The Romans were very, very good at killing people. He was beaten up by a battalion of Roman soldiers. He was nailed to a cross and left to die of, of asphyxiation. And the God at the center of the Christian faith is not just familiar 
with suffering. It's not just a cerebral concept for him. He really knows. And that if we turn to God for help in our suffering, he is not aloof, nor distant, nor indifferent, but rather we turn to a God who really understands because he has been there himself. However, the greatest form of suffering that Jesus endured, something that no movie can portray, uh, is the feeling of, of utter aloneness while hanging on the cross and that Jesus experienced for the first time in, in human history what it felt like to suffer without the comfort and strength of God the Father. It's as though Jesus had the weight of every evil act, every wrong choice, bearing down on him. The one who had done no wrong, had everything wrong, bearing down on him and was judged for that. And therefore there was a separation from the Father. And in essence, Jesus was separated from God. He was utterly, cosmically alone during his hour of greatest suffering so that we never need to be separated from God during our hour of greatest suffering unless we so choose it. Our suffering uh, as a family had ups and downs um, and there um, was a particularly low moment after Conrad had become well um, uh, last summer, he was actually ill for three months and the, the current thing that we were using, cranial osteopathy, had stopped working. And so the thing that we had relied on was no longer working. And then um, he had actually become well by being prayed for by somebody. And then a few weeks later, suddenly, he went back to being ill. And that feeling was as though we'd been robbed. And I was on the phone to a friend, Joyce, who was here, and um, we were talking about it, about what, what is the way forward from here. And Joyce said something that was very helpful to me. Sometimes we can't uh, get rid of the suffering ourselves. Sometimes we have to go with it. Sometimes you have to go down underneath it and let God bring you back up again and there are some situations so overwhelming that we need help from outside of ourselves in order to resurface and that helped me to understand what happened when Jesus died because Jesus allowed himself to be consumed by evil he went down underneath it and somehow defeated it and dethroned it and took the wind out of its sails to rescue us so that we don't have to be destroyed by evil unless we let ourselves and choose not to ask for the help that God is freely offering us. And Jesus left it all there in the grave and went through death and out the other side. Jesus took evil and suffering to the grave with him all the broken relationships and the grief and the, and, the, and the foolish decisions that we wish we hadn't had and the sickness and the long-term illness, he took them and he left them there and he went through death and out the other side because death could not hold God who is life. And therefore, there is no pit too deep from which God cannot pull us out. There is no trauma too overwhelming from which God cannot pull you back onto your feet. Does God care about your suffering? Yes, because he has been there. Yes, because he has done everything possible 
to pour down everything you need to get through it. Resources from outside of yourself that perhaps you never even knew were there. But we do have to choose him in order to benefit. We have to use our freedom for its ultimate purpose, which is to choose God and enjoy relationship with him. We don't understand why many of the appalling things happen in life. One thing we do know, suffering reminds us that life is fragile. Suffering reminds us that we are limited. And sometimes suffering gets our attention and causes us to ask questions about the bigger picture. Is this all there really is to life? Is there more than this? Is he doing this in your life? And finally, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he just stop evil and get rid of it? Well, actually the Christian perspective is that one day he will. Just because God hasn't removed evil so far doesn't mean that he never intends to. How do you fix a broken story? Our stories are broken in so many different ways, visible and hidden. How do you fix a broken story? The Christian message is that you fix a broken story by embedding it in a much bigger story in which good does win, in which evil will lose, in which justice will be done. Even if justice hasn't been done here, it will one day be done. This is not the end of the story, and Christianity talks of a time when there will be no more crying or sorrow or pain. And this is why Christians talk about having hope. But the reason that this hasn't happened yet is to give people time to think about their choices and make good ones, especially about who Jesus is. But it has been my experience and the experience of many of the women here that through Jesus Christ and knowing him and his life, his death and his resurrection, it is possible to know forgiveness for the past, a clean start, comfort in the present and hope for the future. And we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and we've only really scratched the surface. But I would love it. Uh, I'd love to say, do come and find me. Uh, firstly, if you have questions and would like to chat some more, I'm very happy to do that. And secondly, if you are a person who prays and you would like to pray about something that's come to mind as we've been talking, then I'd be very happy to do that as well. Thank you for your time.